for a lot of people who have osteoarthritis, they may think that they're alone. You're definitely not. There are over 500 million people around the world that have osteoarthritis. So this is an incredibly prevalent disease and it affects many people through both developing and developed countries around the world. The prevalence of osteoarthritis does differ by joint that's involved, whether that be knee, hip or hand. And I think a lot of people don't understand that knee osteoarthritis is much, much more common than hip osteoarthritis. And at least from some of the literature that's emerging, is probably the joint that has the biggest burden associated with it. Depending upon what joint you have involved, it can also have a big effect on your overall health. And so on this week's episode of Joint Action, we're joined by Kriang Lu to talk about the different sites that are affected by osteoarthritis, their prevalence, and the risk factors from an international study that's run from the Global Burden of Disease Study, or GBD. Hello, Dr. Liu. Welcome to the show. Hi. It's good to be here with you. Now, Liu, before we get too much further into the content of today, what I'd like to try to do is to get to know you a little bit better. Can you share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day looks like? I got my MD in Peking University, Beijing, China, under the supervision of Professor Jian Haolin. And I had my postdoc training in Harvard Medical School by the Orsi Scholarship under the supervision of Professor Yu Qingzhang. And it's good to be here with David on this podcast. Uh, as a physician scientist, that's what I would name myself. I usually start my day with a water round at 8 a.m. every day. Then I will start performing joint replacement surgeries for patients with end-stage osteoarthritis, usually five to six operations a day, and I have two operation days a week. I see my patients in outpatient twice a week. This work is based in my hospital. I will also spend one day a week delivering exercise therapy programs to my patients in the private clinic. This private clinic was founded before the COVID-19 in 2019. And we keep running it and we keep delivering non-surgical treatment for patients with osteoarthritis in the private clinic. It's fantastic. It sounds like you've got a very full plate and a, and a presumably a very busy both clinical and research and academic life as a consequence. Now, Lou, when you're not doing your day job, what is it that you like to do? When I have time, I like to read. Mostly I read books on education because I just had my baby. She's one year old now. Uh, also, I read books on family and relationship. These books help me to deal with relationships with others better. I think it's, it makes me better. So I love to read. I also enjoy hiking with my family. And sometimes I do some bodyweight training. That's the interesting part. Um, I really enjoy bodyweight training because, you know, one thing I, w- I deliver exercise therapy programs to my patients. So I have to show my patients how the movements you're going to do it 
in the right way. So sometimes I try these movements myself, and I found they are not only helpful, but you know, it brings me the feeling of what's happening to my body. This is very interesting part, and sometimes it helps me understand joint diseases better. How to you know alleviate pain? How to keep exercising even if you have joint problems in the right way. So I really enjoy doing these trainings. You know, not only to help me stay fit, but also understand what's happening to my patients when they have these programs. Yeah, that's wonderful. I, I mean, I I would imagine it's good to obviously practice what you preach. But I think also, I would imagine you're probably relatively unique as a surgeon who also prescribes or delivers exercise programs. Um, do you know of many other surgeons that do that, either in China or, or elsewhere? Oh, not really. You know, I learned these stuff from basically physical therapists, not, yeah. not, not in China, but my friends outside of China, including Professor Eva Roos yeah. in Denmark and Professor Kim Bunnell, they both done a lot of researches and developed programs for patients with osteoarthritis. In China, actually, this is kind of unique for surgeons because uh, when you perform the surgery, you just concentrate so much. You almost forget everything around yourself. But after the surgery, when I am in the outpatient, I see so many patients, you know, did not get proper care from the surgeons in China. This is an interesting phenomenon because most patients can directly see their orthopedic surgeons in the first time when they have the joint problems. We don't have a very good community health service system, so the they will not be referred to surgeons before they have seen their GPs. So as surgeons, we see a lot of patients who does not need surgery. And um, I would say the percent for one outpatient unit is uh, over 80%. So a lot of patients, I can't just overlook them, ignore their needs. So. I have to learn. And uh, luckily, I have friends like you and like Eva, like Kim. I think th these programs are very helpful for me and for our patients. Oh, well, kudos to you for uh, doing something about it and hopefully serving the population of people out there who have knee osteoarthritis. Because I think without people like you and the help that you provide, they probably wouldn't have any care being delivered for them at all. Now, Lou, if you had to describe yourself, in five words, what words would you choose? Oh, yeah, this is a tough question, but also a good one. I would say thoughtful, reliable, confident, curious, and straightforward. Tremendous, tremendous qualities. Yeah. Of, of course, these are the positive aspects of me as, as a person, you know. Yeah, well, you probably don't want to broadcast the negative things, but that's okay. Now, before we go too much further, I'd like to really get into the content of today, which is a paper uh, that you co-authored, which came out in Arthritis and Rheumatology 
late last year, looking at the prevalence trends of site-specific osteoarthritis, which is from the Global Burden of Disease Study. But before I guess we get into that particular uh, topic, I just want you to say a few brief words about what joints osteoarthritis tends to commonly affect, because I think it'll help to lay a little bit of a platform for some of the other material we'll talk about later. You know, you just mentioned the Global Burden of Disease Study, and according to the results in 2019, the joints that accounted for the main disease burden were the knee, followed by hand and other joints. This is the data from globally and in most regions and countries all over the world. The prevalence of uh, hip osteoarthritis was relatively lower than other joints, especially in Asian populations. Some population-based studies have shown this trend. So the joints commonly affected are knee, hands, other joints, including lumbar joints, and uh, the last one is hip. And of the proportions that you found in terms of the prevalence rates, you said that knee osteoarthritis was the biggest burden. How much of osteoarthritis prevalence does knee osteoarthritis account for, roughly, in terms of the burden? That would be 60.6%, according to most latest uh, findings from the GBD study. Yeah. And so obviously, we're talking, when you're talking about that, you're talking about prevalence. So that's the number of people who are affected by the disease. It's not necessarily talking about the impact on quality of life. It's really just talking about the absolute number of people who have the disease. Tell us a little bit about the study that you did in the Global Burden of Disease and how that prevalence estimate has changed over the time course that you studied. Yeah, that's the interesting findings of this study we just published. From the GBD study, our findings revealed that the prevalent cases and the age standardized prevalence of osteoarthritis increased from 1990 to 2019 globally and in most regions and countries. So it's a very, very common all over the world. Of the 369 injuries in GBD study, osteoarthritis ranked 17th highest in terms of prevalent cases and 19th in terms of age standardized prevalence. So it was estimated that around 1 to 2.5% of national gross domestic product was attributed to the medical cost of osteoarthritis. So this is the economic burden caused by osteoarthritis. While we did not take into account the indirect costs, including work loss and premature retirement, those numbers are really quite staggering, really, when you when you look at that. So obviously, you know, it's in, as you said, the top 20 diseases around the world and the direct healthcare costs related to the disease taking up at least 1% of GDP might not sound like a lot, but particularly in uncertain economic times, that's that's really quite staggering. At least according to the paper, 
it's 247 million people had mm -hmm. prevalent osteoarthritis in 1990. And in 2019, that had more than doubled to 527 million people. So that's an incredible number of people have osteoarthritis. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned a moment ago that obviously that prevalence is changing and it's continuing to change. What factors are associated with that increased prevalence? And if there is any joint or site difference, just tell us a little bit about that. Oh, yes. This is also a part of the study findings. There were positive associations between the age standardized prevalence and social demographic index for osteoarthritis at each anatomic site in both 1990 and 2019. We observed a high prevalence of osteoarthritis in countries with a high social demographic index, such as the U.S. An increase in life expectancy is, I think, it's a non-neglectable explanation for this finding, which means globally population is aging. So people are having higher life expectancy. As you know, as people age, their joints are more likely to have problems. We used in our paper Social demographic index, it is a compounded indicator based on fertility, income, and educational attainment to represent the development level of GBD regions and countries. It indicates the quality and availability of healthcare. So our finding indicates that in more developed countries, including U.S., Australia, the prevalence is high. This changes in numerous risk factors for our way, including the social and the occupational risk factors and some epidemiologic and the demographic transition. You know, these are phenomena globally may have uh, contributed to the correlation. So basically we find a common trend regarding the change of prevalence over each of the joints, including knee, hip, hand, and other joints. In some joints, there are interesting differences in changes. For example, in most GBD geographic regions, knee ranked first. The pre I mean, the prevalence and the, the absolute number of prevalent cases. But hand was most commonly affected joint in Eastern Europe and North America in both 1990 and 2019. And for those differences that you see in Eastern Europe and North America with regards to site prevalence, hand being slightly more common than knee, yeah. is that, do you think, a function of differences in demography? Is that a function of the measurement and the way the global burden of disease study captured data. And so, sorry, just to just to clarify for all the listeners, when Lou says GBD, it stands for global burden of disease. So is that the differences that you're seeing there by country a function of measurement? Or is that a function of, you think, differences in the true prevalence of the disease? Understanding fully that, you know, the global burden of disease study is limited by whatever data is being captured in each of those countries. 
yeah, that's a very good point. I think there might be misclassifications due to different definitions regarding the disease in different joints. Actually, it is also a limitation of the GBD study. But, you know, what we have, the best one is GBD study. I guess when we are reading these results, we have to bear in mind that there is a possibility for misclassification regarding the diagnosis of this disease in GBD study. So I think we can also refer to other studies, other epidemiological studies. I mean, the original data sources for GBD study. Some studies are also reliable to read, to take in. So I think the fact is that knee and hand are the most commonly affected joints in yeah. all over the country. But when it when it comes to the rank, because they are they are both popular, we need to address this burden equally. Yeah, no, fantastic. Now you mentioned a moment ago that obviously the prevalence increases with the aging of the community, and so in older in older populations, this disease appears to be uh, more prevalent, and where life expectancy has increased, you'd expect it to be more prevalent. Is there any evidence to suggest that there's any relationship to whether the population is male or female? Oh, yeah, of course, there is a significant difference uh, in the prevalence of osteoarthritis. Women are more likely to have osteoarthritis. Yeah, I mean, at, at least according to the to the data that you've got there, the sex differences are really quite profound and profound, yeah. you know, not only for knee osteoarthritis, but also for, for hand osteoarthritis being much more common in females than males. And that, if anything, appears to be becoming more pronounced with time as time goes by. Now, obviously, the main purpose of the conversation today, Lou, was really just to talk about the burden of osteoarthritis, how it's affecting a number of different countries uh, throughout the world and highlighting, I guess, some of the reasons why it's becoming increasingly prevalent, whether that be, you know, the aging of the community, female or male distribution. What messages do you think are really important to come from this study with regards uh, public health implications um, and potential prevention? I think we have to be aware that the burden of osteoarthritis is growing worldwide. And this is a big public health issue. And we do have some opportunities for prevention, you know. First, population aging and obesity epidemic have contributed to the increased number of prevalent cases and age standardized prevalence of OA all over the world. From the perspective of public health, we need to promote a healthier lifestyle in controlling body weight and keeping physically active, especially among those who are at high risk of developing osteoarthritis. Individually, I think we will benefit from preventative measures for joint injuries in our daily life or in, in exercise. That's the point for primary prevention. I would talk a little bit about the secondary prevention, which means we take measures to prevent those with the early stage disease from having joint surgeries 
Um, I think this is very important from the perspective of clinical work for doctors who are seeing these patients. We have to provide them with evidence-based advice regarding losing weight and how to strengthen your legs, how to keep a healthier diet. You know, these may be very helpful as the evidence shows in alleviating pain and maintaining a good function for these patients. So in this sense, the availability of evidence-based non-surgical treatment is very important. According to most guidelines internationally and in our country, include patient education, weight loss, self-management, and exercise therapy. These are first line of the treatment. They lay the foundation of the management of this disease with a very growing burden globally. Especially in our country, we have the largest population in the world. And sometimes I can't get proud of it, this rank number one, because the very large population. But non-surgical treatment is very uh, limited in our country. For example, due to some restrictions, um, exercise therapy usually delivered by physical therapists. Most physical therapists are not eligible to work in hospitals because they were not trained in medical schools. This is true uh, in China, sometimes frustrating, but we have to, you know, we have to deal with it. So um, I think promoting evidence-based non-surgical treatment for those with early stage disease is very important in terms of secondary pre prevention. It will be helpful decreasing the need for surgery or even help people avoid having the surgery. Yeah, and no, so there's a really lot of important messages there and I just, I guess, briefly distill some of them. So, you know, one of the important elements about the study is highlighting the number of people who are affected by osteoarthritis, both in terms of the absolute number of people that have the disease, but also in terms of the impact that that has for the individuals affected and the healthcare system that is responsible for their care. So that number is continuing to increase. And unless we do something either about prevention and that could be either primary or secondary prevention, that number will become overwhelming. And I think critical, Lou, to some of what you're saying there is it's really, really important to have a good functioning primary care so that that way people can access those interventions that you spoke about, whether that be you know, exercise, education, weight reduction, and they don't necessarily need to go off and see the surgeon and potentially have care that they otherwise are not needing. One thing that you did highlight there is an area where China is leading, potentially, unfortunately. So, you know, obviously, we mentioned before that, you know, 527 million people around the world have osteoarthritis. And the leader on that board there is China, with 133 million of those people. Next, followed by India with 62 million and US with 52 million. So there's some countries there that you know, have a staggering number of people that are affected, but also I guess hopefully your study helps to highlight opportunities for doing things differently 
to the way we're currently managing the disease. Now, Lou, is there anything further that you wanted to say about the study in terms of highlighting messages before we get on to some other questions? Yeah, as you mentioned, the burden of uh, osteoarthritis vary with the geographic regions. And uh, the two leading countries, China and India, are still developing countries. So I think managing this huge burden of osteoarthritis is not only a matter of healthcare, it's also a matter of policy making, uh, health insurance, you know, a whole uh, system, including the primary care system. But I would mention also that extending from the research findings and looking at this from the perspective of my country is that we need a better medical health care uh, providers education. From the moment, most patients with osteoarthritis are visiting orthopedic surgeons. Orthopedics is a specialty for surgery, but we have to uh, see these huge number of patients. So I think it's better before they see us, they can have their GPs, either in community healthcare service or, or big hospitals. I think most of them will get, get a good results. But then when they, you know, they have to have the surgery or they want to evaluate their indication for surgery, they came to us. The lack of a, a good system for primary care is, I think, is the one thing that we have to address. And in this, we need uh, GPs to be trained and educated in medical schools. My medical school, Peking University, is the leading one in China, and we don't have a department or residency program for GPs for physicians who are delivering primary care. No, we don't have this one. So this is one problem I would say here. Yeah, it's a bit. It's a big problem, and as you say, requires both a sort of an important policy approach and a change to the health system in the way that care is uh, is being delivered. So that might be a good segue into some of the closing questions, Lou. So if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, and that can be in China or around the world, what would you do? Oh. Um, yeah, that's a good one. I will set up a department of physical medicine in our medical school. At least I will promote this because we don't have this residency program that train medical students to take care of patients with joint diseases in the non-surgical way. If we have these colleagues, we can refer our patients to them and they will take a good care of these patients. And we don't feel frustrated. Yeah. Well, I, ho I hope your ambition comes to fruition because it's a, it's a really important change for, for China and for other countries who don't necessarily have good functioning uh, non-operative programs. We need, we need a lot more. Now, Lou, how do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things? Yeah, I just keep doing what, we, what I do before... COVID-19, I will try, I will keep attending meetings such as ORC and ACR. I can 
meet professors and researchers from all over the world. We have productive and inspiring talks with each other. So I can also learn from their work, keep me up to date. After the COVID-19, I realized that I have to also communicate with experts in fields, not rheumatology or orthopedics, but related to my specialty, including those from industry and artificial intelligence. These are very helpful to doing research. For example, telehealth is getting popular and it is possible that we work with uh, these guys from the industry or the research institution to develop and deliver online management programs to our patients. This is not only for the COVID-19 restrictions, but also for those who are remote, who have little access to healthcare from the leading hospitals. Before the COVID-19, patients tend to uh, come to Beijing to see the top doctors. As I mentioned, we don't have the GP system. So they can just wait and uh, reserve to see the top doctors. If we have these tools, telehealth tools, we can help them better for those patients from remote areas. Yeah, I think COVID-19 has introduced a lot of changes to healthcare, of which obviously the pervasiveness of telehealth is one of them. And I think it's something that's been a wonderful change for healthcare, and I'm hoping it continues to expand both using standard methods of telecommunication, whether that be through technologies such as Zoom, but also digital health applications and remote delivery of care, I think is, is really expanding. Now, Lou, what motivates you to continue to do what you do? When I decided to be a doctor, my motivation was the uh the sense of achievement, curing patients, or the passion for curing patients. But as I work a longer time as a doctor, especially when the COVID-19 came, sometimes I feel the lack of power to cure. You know, sometimes when you're battling with one disease, it's a system, systematic thing. It's not only the, the personal skills, your education, your training, it's only one part of the thing. So even though we, we cannot cure in most cases, I want to make a difference to our patients. That's my motivation now, not in the initial stage. I think the value of medicine lies in caring about patients. We comfort them. We um, share their stories. We provide advice and help in any ways we can. You know, when a patient trusts you, especially this feeling strong when I perform surgery, oh, they lie there without knowing what you do and let you cut me open. This trust is, uh, you know, is priceless. I think this makes the relationship between doctor and the patient secret. So, it requires me to do my best to make a difference in any ways I can. So I will keep learning. I will keep up, keep doing research to address the questions I have in my clinical work. Yeah, being a doctor, being a pure doctor in the ideal way is my motivation, I guess. 
Well, it's, it sounds like you're making a profound difference. So your motivation is uh, following through, and I hope you continue to make a tremendous difference to the patient population that you serve. Um, Lou, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it say and why? Joints are born to move. You can use them without being afraid of exercising. Just use it in the right way. Although cartilage cannot be regenerated, it is not worn out. It needs load, actually. If you keep the load to your cartilage in a reasonable range and uh, in a good frequency, your joints will remain healthy. Yeah. No, it's such, such an important message because I think a lot of people, when they think about their joint health, they think activity may worsen them. And... Unfortunately, that's quite pervasive, but hopefully the messaging from this podcast and other sources will help to convey the right message that the joints are capable of quite a lot of continued load, um, irrespective of uh, the, the magnitude of disease in their joint. Exactly. Now, is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give to people who have osteoarthritis out there in the community? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think... Uh, this one thing goes that if you really want something, work for it. Here, I will rephrase it in the way that if you really want a cure, work for it. Osteoarthritis is a disease that causes chronic pain or recurrent pain and very slowly progress into malfunction. So uh, if you want to manage it in the, in the right way, work for it in two aspects. First, cooperate with your doctor, you know, um, ask for their opinions and follow their prescriptions. Second, stick to a healthy lifestyle in your daily life uh, in terms of uh, physical activity and diet and keep your weight in the normal range. I always mention to my patients, so we cooperate with each other to fight against this disease. And uh, mostly we will success. That's a great way to close, a really positive message. And I'm hoping something that uh, people out there who are listening can heed in terms of being proactive about following healthy lifestyle choices and, and continued success with their joint health. Lou, thank you so much for all that you do, for, for the work that you're doing both clinically and uh, from a research perspective, and for spending a little bit of time with us and sharing your insights. It's really, really valuable, and I appreciate that. And hopefully, we'll see each other again sometime soon. Yeah, hopefully. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. So osteoarthritis can affect any movable joint in the body, but the biggest joints that are affected in terms of their prevalence are knee and hand around the world. Now, you might think 500 million people being affected is a large number, but unfortunately, the prevalence estimates suggest that that's going to continue to escalate unless we do something from a public health perspective about slowing that rise, particularly taking aim at the most leading modifiable risk factors of body weight and joint injury. We know that the aging population, uh, increasing obesity, 
uh, increasing numbers of females that are affected is having a big impact on the prevalence of disease. But obviously, whatever we can do from a public health perspective, uh, we should do to modify both the number of people who are developing the disease, but also the course of the disease and those people that are affected. I'm hoping you found the conversation with Lou today helpful. I'm hoping you found uh, the number of people who are affected, as I did, quite staggering and are motivated, hopefully, to do something about reducing the number of people who have this disease longer term. So between now and when next we speak, thank you so much for listening, and I really look forward to connecting with you in the very near future. Please do take care of yourself, and if you have the opportunity, someone else as well. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional.